0: Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams.
1: And I'm Kirk McElhern.
0: Hello, and thank you for listening to us once again. You know, I've asked people to do this in the past. I'm going to ask you to do it again. If you like this show, or if you've liked any of our past episodes, please make it an effort to tell someone who you think will appreciate it about the show, because then they'll appreciate the show. They'll appreciate you for turning them onto the show. We'll appreciate you for turning another listener on to the show. Everybody gets appreciated. And isn't that the way to go about having a good day? All right. Thank you. This is uh, episode 122 of The Next Track. And... We haven't seen him since the early part of the summer. We're awful glad to have our pal Andy Doe back. Andy,
2: did you enjoy your summer? I am enjoying my summer very much. Thank you for having me back on the show. It's been a little while. It
1: has been a little while.
2: Has it been hot where you live, down by the coast? It has. It's been a bit silly, actually. Uh, My garden's almost died, but uh, that's climate change for you.
1: Indeed. So we wanted to talk to you this week because it seems like every month or two now, there was a spate of articles about, oh, Apple's going to stop selling downloads in the iTunes store. And this is actually an interesting question, and we're going to get to that in a few minutes. But as we've been talking over the past week about this, we've been looking at some of these statistics that have come out that are presenting, I would say, a tectonic shift in the way people are actually listening to music. Some of these numbers are really surprising.
2: Well, uh, it has to be said that there are some fairly significant figures released this summer. Are the Nielsen's Media Music Report, which covers music sales in the US, shows that digital track sales dropped 27% uh, in the first half of this year compared to the first half of last year. Uh, Digital album sales down 21%. And that is a pretty significant change. The industry overall is growing and that growth is being driven principally by a a more than 40% increase in on-demand streaming. Having said all of that, forty percent is huge. Forty percent is a really big increase. We uh, we we talked on a previous show about a, a similar level of increase in in vinyl sales, although of course from a, a much smaller market share. This is very significant growth, and it does demonstrate the the latest chapter in what is a long term trend towards streaming audio consumption, which is driven in part by better internet connectivity and in part by mobile consumption.
1: What I find interesting is, so they break down on-demand song streaming for audio and video, and then they present a total. What's important here is that while it's gone up 45% for on-demand song streaming of audio, it's gone up 34% of on-demand song streaming of video. Now, is this watching music videos or is this watching these pirated videos on YouTube where people upload music with like just the album artwork? That will principally
2: be legal consumption that on-demand stream that would be revenue-generating consumption. And I'm not sure exactly where they're drawing the line across some of the grey areas, but I would expect some of that revenue to come from things which are uploaded and then claimed with the revenue claimed from uh, from YouTube. Does that include things like amazon and netflix and and things like that oh no certainly certainly including those things but the the edge cases of that are ad supported streaming right so
1: just and and this is a half year we're looking at 403.4 billion streams of songs in audio and video just for the u.s that is a huge amount
2: That is a lot of listening. And and one of the things that we see change as we shift from purchase to own to rental streaming is that we can track when people are listening to music instead of when people are buying music. And that provides a really interesting insight into people's habits, because what we've what we've known for a long time is that some records get taken home and worn out while some records get taken home and put on shelves.
1: Like the shelves behind you, where before the show I was mentioning that you would gain some space if you removed all that archaic technology. They're about, what, six feet high and eight or ten feet wide of just CDs. How many times have you listened to any given CD on that wall? Obviously, you are an edge case because you have worked in labels and you've probably gotten all of these for free. You haven't bought them. Uh,
2: there There are CDs on this wall that I've listened to certainly dozens of times. I don't know if I've listened to any of them since I was last on the show. The ones I've listened to most, I listened to the largest number of times before they made it into print. And so... Right, of course. So there's a, a lot of them that, that from the moment they were finished, I didn't listen to them again. But
1: Yes. Well, you don't need to. You have to move on to the next project.
2: Well, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm, I'm now listening to CDs that haven't quite made it to my shelf yet. So a lot of these things are sort of career souvenirs rather than... yes rather than music for me to listen to. But having said that, it is a very stable format. All of these CDs are going to outlast the hard drive in my computer.
1: Most likely, most likely.
2: And if, if no one burns down my house, they're, they're a pretty safe way of storing all of this music.
1: Indeed. One of the things in this Nielsen study is it talks about digital albums and TEA, that's a track equivalent album. What exactly does that mean?
2: So it used to be that you could count sales by looking at the number of physical products that were sold and it was either a single or an album. Once people were able to purchase nine of the songs off a 10-track album, it no longer really made sense to count up, to treat those as, as singles because they may be from an artist who'd never put out a single. And what you want to do is look at some kind of headline figure for how much music got got downloaded. So a, a track equivalent album is, a, we assume that when somebody buys 10 tracks from an artist, they've effectively bought an album from that artist. And it is a slightly pop-centric model, but it is a, a way of estimating. And this is based on the average number of tracks on an album that gets sold and based on the revenue that they generate. And in the same way, there's an SEA or stream equivalent album where a certain number of streams... Is equivalent to a download. So if a song gets streamed a thousand times, that's the equivalent of somebody buying it once. And if somebody buys a song ten times, that's the equivalent of an album. So you're looking at maybe 15,000 streams to an album sale or something. The way that those numbers are calculated is based on the equivalent revenue. So uh, I don't remember off the top of my head what Nielsen used to make their estimate for a stream equivalent album. But if you are if you're in the business of making records that get listened to twice, you look at the stream-equivalent album calculation and you weep. <laughs> you know, I realize they have to work with numbers because they're number crunchers,
0: but this is what I don't understand. I'm not sure how a CD uh, is equivalent to a thousand plays. I mean, I know it, it looks legitimate on
2: paper, but it's just something that I can't wrap my head around. So the, the way the way it works is that um, it's it's here. I found it in the, in the footnotes. It's 1,500 streams are equivalent to one album. And that's based on the assumption that when uh, 1,500 streams is equivalent to the amount of money you'd make from the sale of one album.
1: Whereas imagine if someone buys a record, I mean, how many people even listen to an album 100 times? So for each song, they, they maybe listen to it 10 or 20 times, and that would be the equivalent. So let's say, 200 or 500 streams would be the equivalent of an album, whereas, you know, they're taking the monetary amount. So that shows how much less they get per stream than exact than what they were getting for physical sales.
0: See, that's why I, I find bewildering, too, because you're you're paying for access to streams. You're not paying to actually own the product. So at what point... That seems like an awful lot of listening to do before I get any value from, say, a CD or, or an LP.
2: Well, I'm... Um, what you have to remember is that when people have a streaming subscription service, it's quite likely that they're going to listen to more music than if they just have the CDs. If somebody's buying 10 CDs a year, they're not, and that's all the music they listen to, that's not going to entice them to listen as much of the time as if they were listening to a, uh, a streaming subscription service where they could hear anything they want. And so if you look at it from the customer spend perspective... The majority of of Spotify subscribers may very well not, and, and I think their their research bears this out, that their subscribers were not spending that much money on CDs, so they're spending more money on music. The same proportion of that money, the money that they spend, goes to the, the labels, as would have gone to labels if they'd spent that money on purchasing downloads. But, of course, now they get... A greater choice they get to listen to a bigger range of music they get to discover more stuff they get to take more chances on things and so people become more engaged with music and they become more valuable customers in the long term that's the that's the thinking there and bear, bearing in mind that the uh, the music industry's total revenue is growing as streaming becomes increasingly the the dominant consumption platform Uh, It seems like there's some truth in that.
1: Because they're getting people to spend money on music who didn't spend money on music. Instead of buying the occasional CD, people are ponying up 10 bucks a month or 10 pounds or 10 euros, and it's a consistent revenue
2: stream.
0: That's right. So the predictions years ago that streaming will become profitable once it reaches a critical mass is starting to happen now. Right. We're legitimately seeing more listeners providing
2: more revenue. Right. Don't tell Digital Music News though; They'll be terribly, terribly upset.
1: So as I look at some of the numbers for genres, and this is a half a year, the most streamed song is something called God's Plan by Drake with 5,325,000 streams. Now, that is songs with stream-equivalent singles. So the stream-equivalent single was obviously the same sort of ratio as you mentioned to track-equivalent album, just over 5 million. The, The next one is 3 million, then the next three are below 3 million. These are huge amounts, but on the other hand... How many actual singles are they selling? How many records are they selling? If you look at the album sales for the top 10 artists, Drake comes in second with a total of 71,000 actual sales, with 71,000 album sales and just under 2 million digital song sales. On the one hand, we're in the millions, and on the other hand, we're in the tens of thousands. It's a very strange paradox here, how this how these numbers come out.
2: Right, so you're going to see this particularly heavily in hip-hop, where... Uh, streaming is a has a particularly large market share and so what what happens is 1500 streams is an album 150 streams is the equivalent of a single sale so for every 150 times a song has been listened to you're going to have that that counting towards one one sale so you you're looking at hundreds of millions of streams maybe billions of streams for for an individual song and and this is this is people sitting at home in their bedrooms listening to the song over and over and over again. This is people listening to the song on their phone over and over again. This is people learning a very large number of lyrics very carefully. This is real fandom. This is people wearing out the groove on their single. And you could not track that level of engagement when all they had to do was buy the song. So it's it's fascinating now to see where you might have two artists who would each each sell the same number of singles. One of them got listened to twice and people got sick of it and one of them people would people would engage with really heavily and now that is that is showing up in charts. And they're getting paid more for it than the person who wrote the single that got old quickly. I think from from the perspective of the creative side of music, this is in the long run going to reward and encourage those artists who make music that you can engage with at some depth.
1: Yeah, it's actually interesting when you think that the music is getting revenue for how it's used as opposed to that one-off thing where if you really play it a lot, you've got it at a bargain price and the musicians don't get anything. It, it's it's a turnaround to the way we've looked at this sort of thing, books, music, movies and all that. And And as you say, it will reward different types of music. It's
2: not necessarily a bad thing for the people creating the music. That's right. And if what you want to do is make collector's items, then you can always go and make a deluxe physical product that people can take home and collect and never listen to and you can still get paid for that. Uh, it, It does make it difficult for those projects which would only have been financially viable because of the number of people willing to buy it just so that they could own it and have the opportunity to listen to it once. A project like that is not going to be financially viable if streaming is the only way it's supported. But streaming is not the only way of supporting anything and you know you you look at you look at these figures streaming's market share is large it is important but you look at what's left of the physical market you look at the vinyl market you look at what's left of the uh, the download-on-demand market, these are all still very significant numbers.
0: We chatted with a uh, a young musician a couple of weeks ago, and she's about to release her first album. And she's releasing it as streams, as digital downloads, as a CD, and also as vinyl. And I asked her, I said, is this what you have to do now? Because it wasn't, it wasn't that long ago where I don't think a lot of people would... I don't think many artists would consider releasing vinyl. And they may not even consider releasing CDs... But, I mean, is this what you have to do now? Have we have we gotten to a point now where you really want to cover all your bases and that one particular format isn't going to do it? That is, you've got to release streaming, downloads, and both forms of physical product. Is, is that what you have to do?
2: Well, if you look at the, the total figures, digital album sales, 27.5 million in the first half of this year. Uh, vinyl, 7.6 million. Physical sales, 41.3 million. These are now in the same order of magnitude as each other. And there will be products which sell better on vinyl than they do on CD. There will be products which do most of their sales digitally. There will be products that do most of their sales on physical CD. And you have to look at your, your, individual, your individual project, and you have to look at what your audience wants. You have to look at whether or not you have the scale to support producing something on vinyl because it it can have quite high fixed costs but it also has the has the potential to generate much larger margins and and having looked at having looked at what people actually want you got to you got to make what's going to help your project recoup and hopefully be profitable So one thing that's interesting, and remember
1: this is a half-year report, is if you look at the top ten albums, total sales, so digital and physical,
2: there is one record that has sold more than a million copies in half a year. It sold more than a million copies in half a year, and yet it is not the number one album. And the reason it's not the number one album is because streams are taken into account, whereas this album, the the Greatest Showman original motion picture soundtrack, which has sold 1,064,000 albums has clocked up 635 million on demand streams which sounds like a lot but the number one album Post Malone's Beerbongs and Bentleys which sounds like a lot of fun has managed to clock up 2 billion audio streams so although it's only sold 258,000 albums only 258,000 albums uh, the 2 billion streams have knocked it over the top what that adds up to is total equivalent album consumption of 1,791,000 instead of the 1.6 million of of the Greatest Showman soundtrack. So although it's sold four times as many albums, it's not number one. Because the Greatest Showman soundtrack is a soundtrack, and because people will have been very, very tempted to, uh, after watching the movie, uh, they might have walked out of the movie theater in a in a shopping mall where all the shops are closed uh they'll have looked it up on their phone they've thought I love this I want to have it they can't buy it physically uh they buy it digitally but they buy the whole thing because it is it is a full album product
1: and also it's a mood, and they're remembering that there's a number of songs that they liked, even if they don't remember which ones they were. That's right. And this is, it it
0: it's an exception. This sort of thing. I, I've seen this movie, The Greatest Showman, and it's not exactly my cup of tea. But I can see where the appeal lies, and I think that for a certain segment of the people who love this movie, they only know how to buy their
2: music as CDs. They may not be familiar with digital downloads or um or streaming. Looking looking into this a little further, we can see that its digital sales were six hundred thousand, six hundred seventy-six thousand. So this was approximately sixty-eight percent digital consumption, but through album download. And there are there are a few reasons for this, but uh, digital downloads are still massively overrepresented uh, in in the soundtracks market. Partly because physical retail is mostly closed at the moment in time that people are most keen to purchase a soundtrack and because people want to own a souvenir. Also, you're talking about a quite specific subset of the audience here who who are people who maybe could stream a movie, they could sit at home and and Netflix a film, but they've gone to the cinema and paid money to have the experience of watching a film and they're willing to, again, pay some more money and have the experience of owning a soundtrack. And that's why I think we'll continue to see outliers uh, like this like this soundtrack are uh, doing huge numbers at uh album downloads so this brings us to the to the topic of
1: the episode. A number of publications keep reporting that Apple is going to stop selling downloads in iTunes albums and songs but that One outlier, which maybe there's one a year, suggests that if they did that, the record companies would certainly not be happy. Now, album sales are down 17.6% in the first half of this year, and that's physical and digital. Digital album sales are down 21.7%. They've dropped from 35 to 27 million. Nevertheless, that's still 27 million digital album sales. And I can't see Apple giving up on that anytime soon.
2: Yeah, that's like a quarter of a billion dollars in revenue on those those albums and another quarter of a billion in track sales. Right, 223 million digital track sales. Yeah, it's a lot of money. It's a huge amount of money. And it's possible that Apple are reaching the point where they think they could convert the majority of those purchasers to streaming subscribers, or enough of them for it to make financial sense for them. But I, I think it's worth it's worth taking taking a step back from speculating, really specifically about that, to look at the, the broader ecosystem. There are people who. Download their music from iTunes because that's their habit. There are people who download their music from iTunes because what they really, really want to do is download their music. Some of those people will just go and download their music somewhere else. Some of those downloads will be from other legal stores. A percentage of them will probably be illegal downloads. But now you can get a, a fairly comparable product from other places and And so they may lose some of those customers. The people who really like to be within the Apple ecosystem may very well get nudged into subscribing to Apple Music at that point.
1: Yeah, but this isn't only Apple. This is also Amazon and any other
2: company that's selling downloads. Sure, but there has been speculation about Apple shutting down its download-to-own store for a long time. This has been going on for years. And when I worked at Apple, I worked at Apple for seven years, and whenever I read some piece of speculation about what we were going to do, If it was something I knew about, then I I would always note straight away, well, they've, they've got that wrong in a really simplistic way. They've oversimplified that and got that wrong. Uh, when we do the thing we're going to do, it's going to be a, a bigger move than that. It'll, it's going to be a whole strategic shift. It's not just, oh, they're not going to do that anymore. Yeah, they're not just going to cut out a huge part of their revenue. Yeah, so the, the, the rumor normally misses the larger, the larger point of the story. It's also worth remembering that this rumor has been, been going on for years. Eventually, it's got to happen.
1: A broken clock is right twice a day.
2: Exactly. If if we keep recirculating this rumor, eventually we're going to be right about it. One of the things that troubles me about hearing these rumors is that they will often use the phrase
0: sooner than later. You know, Apple will end downloads sooner than later. Well, of course they will end them sooner than later because things don't happen sooner or later than when they happen. It would be one thing if we decided that file downloads had to end and... Apple was going to do it sooner than later, but there is no end in sight to file downloads that, that we're aware of.
2: Yeah. Look, if, if, you, if you make a prediction without a deadline, if it's not time-specific, it's not really a prediction at all. And let's remember that the same class of pundit who who are now predicting that Apple's going to stop selling downloads have been predicting that the death of the CD for years and years and years. And...
1: And that's not happened. Or the death of classical music or the death of literacy and books and all that.
2: Yeah. And just about the time that we we were were complaining about young people not reading anymore, they started complaining that their children were always face down in their phone reading and texting each other. It's rubbish. (laughs) And, And, you know, the world is just much more complicated than these kind of simplistic headlines. The ownership of music, certainly not over. Um, there are all sorts of reasons why Apple might seriously consider shutting off download to own. Um, and what I know from working at Apple is that is that until it's announced, the decision isn't really made. There may be a plan to do something. They, they may have, they may have thought, well, you know, this is a thing we should do, and and set a point in the future where where they want to be really ready to do it. But until somebody goes on stage, until Eddie Q goes on stage and says we're gonna do this, until Tim Cook goes on stage and says, We're gonna do this, or until it's quietly removed from the website and slinks away with its tail between its legs <laughs> to archive.org. Until the change is made in a public way, Apple is not committed to doing it. And I've I've seen I've seen software features reach the reach the, the the GM stage, they're they're ready to be released and and whole features get cut and some of the things you see people snooping around in the code on on developers builds they snoop around in the libraries and they find references to to features that do not exist and never come to exist it's because those features got ripped out at the last minute because the company decided not to do it and so when predictions like this are are made. And sources familiar with the situation are quoted as saying that the company's getting ready to do this, the company's preparing to do this, the company's going to do this, the company's committed to do this. This is often news to people on the inside who are aware that this is a thing that's being considered but also know how much work there is between here and that actually happening and who also understand what contractual obligations have to be fulfilled before that's possible. And so the, the answer to, to all of these things is always, maybe, maybe, maybe in time. So there's some interesting
1: numbers. If you go to page 31 of your handout, share of total album equivalent consumption by format. And it shows just how pervasive streaming is for certain genres. Latin is 83% streaming, electronic and dance is 79%, R&B, hip hop, 79%, and pop, 67%. Those are huge numbers. The industry overall is 66%. But then most of the other genres are less than 50%. So imagine that you stop the sale of digital albums. Well, that would be 19% of classical sales, 16% of jazz, 17% of children's, 14% of Christian and gospel, 10% of country, and even 14% of rock. I can't imagine the major record labels going along with a change like that.
2: It does seem like it would take a really significant bite out of some people's revenue. And if you're a major label making most of your money from from hip hop, then you're likely to be pretty much okay with this. But having said that, I've seen what a major label will do to increase the sales of a record by 7% and they're not going to give up 7% easily, then again, they're not in charge of this conversation. And they may very well be convinced at some point that transitioning those album consumers into streaming subscribers would be a good thing for them.
0: I often wonder if there are uh, you know, contractual obligations with the record companies that they may not be too happy if Apple wants to get rid of downloads. I mean, would that affect... Uh, you know whether they're allowed to stream and and that sort of thing. What are the contractual obligations?
2: It could result in some fairly awkward meetings, certainly. But uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I would guess that certainly with the indies, Apple would probably not be in trouble with their contracts if they just took down all of the downloads and only kept the streams up. I mean, looking looking at the the market share here for. For classical, which I think now has the largest digital albums share it's at 19%. This is a 19% that was that was very hard one. I and a lot of other people I work with uh, worked very, very hard to ensure that classical music was available on download platforms, that the download platforms supported it, uh, carried it, that the labels engaged with it. And, and this 19% was a very hard one, nineteen 19%. Uh, classical labels and consumers did not all unanimously rush to embrace digital, but many of them came to it having realized that this was this was convenient, that the search engine was actually easier than rummaging around in a shop, that the the selection was great. And it is interesting now to see that these are these are the holdouts the, the this is a genre in which people are relatively slow to transition to streaming because they're actually perfectly happy with their their digital downloads. And I think there are consumers who would have a lot to say about the disappearance of a major download outlet at this time.
1: Yeah, I think it's a bit too early. So wh- one other claim that the publications that sort of shop this rumor around come up with regularly is the fact that Apple may start selling high-resolution downloads. Of course, this is the flip side of the coin – What sort of odds do you give on that one? Personally, my my thought is closer to never than sometime. But what do you think? Of the
2: two hypotheses we're discussing today, I I think that's the more ridiculous. Because if what's really growing is on-demand streaming, then there's not a very compelling argument to invest in the technology to deliver higher resolution audio. People just don't want it. And if I really, really want my Schulte ring to be utterly lossless... You can buy something. I think it's called a CD. I can Amazon Prime it faster <laughs> than I can listen to it anyway. And the CD is lossless. You know, it, it'll arrive tomorrow. It'll be lossless. I've tried downloading lossless audio from like office internet connections and realised it would be quicker to walk to a shop and buy the CD. I, I just don't think that... that People who are making an appointment with themselves to listen to something in depth and with great care are are in that much of a hurry to listen to it that it's tremendously valuable to be able to do it in a lossless format. That said, certainly some of the – many of the recordings I've worked on are available at high-res audio stores, and people do buy them. It's a small segment of the market because most people are principally interested in hearing the music – at uh, a good enough quality. And modern AAC encoding is a good enough quality. The the encoding that Spotify uses is good enough quality. People can't hear any obvious artifacts that they're happy with it. So can you give us a prediction for something
1: unexpected or something expected that may happen in the music market? Digital, physical, streaming? Is there a come back for cassettes or eight tracks? What, what do you see on the horizon?
2: Uh, my prediction is nothing ever goes away completely. So uh, just, as, just as vinyl didn't go away when CD ought to have killed it, so CD didn't go away when iTunes ought to have killed it. And the download is not going to go away because streaming ought to have killed it. People are a diverse bunch. Music is a diverse art form and consumers are a diverse bunch. And so each to their own, people are going to find the way that they want to enjoy music. And there will be stores, there will be marketplaces that that continue to exist to allow those consumers to, to do so in the way they want. And if you really, really, really love the iTunes interface, and Apple takes away your downloads, you you might be disappointed, but you may also have been using a very old version of iTunes. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks very much, Andy. Thanks, Andy. Thanks for having me on the show. It's always a pleasure. Now
0: would be a good time, since this is the time that we do it, to present our next tracks.
1: Kirk. So for my next track this week, there's a new album out by the Icelandic composer Olafur Arnalds. And I'm a big fan of his music. This is the sort of, how would you call this? The record labels are calling this neoclassical music. And I think this is really stupid. It's mellow music. You know, you think of Harold Budd on piano. You think of the Mertens and with his ensembles. There's a bit of minimalism. There's a bit of ambience, but not really. It's kind of hard to categorize. You know, you take another composer like Neil Strom, who I think I picked as a next track a while back. There's a similarity. So this new record is called Remember. Re, colon, member. Get it? See what he did there? Remember, And it's a very attractive record. And, and there's this technological thing that he's talking about. And I kind of almost wish it wasn't one of the selling points. He came up with some sort of software that makes two sort of semi-generative pianos to play, like player pianos. And there's algorithms, and the pianos respond to the notes that are played on the normal piano and amplify what he's playing. And it kind of sounds like a gimmick. The music comes off really nicely. There's keyboards, and there's string quartet, and it's a very attractive sound world that he creates. One reason why I'm particularly interested in listening to this is I've got tickets to see him in a couple weeks in Birmingham, which is an hour away, and... This is a musician that I've liked for a long time, so I'm looking forward to that. What about you, Doug?
0: Back in the day, back in the 70s when I was in college, I had a lot of electrical engineering friends who were really into jazz fusion. I don't know why. Prog rock and jazz fusion. At the college station I worked at, we had block programming, uh, rock late at night, jazz in the middle of the evening, and invariably four or five nights a week was just jazz fusion. Jazz fusion was pretty popular for a little while, as and I know some purists don't particularly care for it. But it made quite an impact, and uh, and a lot of rock people, a lot of rock fans, got into jazz because of their exposure to a lot of jazz fusion bands. One that I knew about that I didn't pay much attention to at the time was Brian Auger's Oblivion Express. Now, Brian Auger is a British jazz musician. He plays uh, Hammond, B3, and other keyboards, but primarily the Hammond. Um, he goes back, his first band was with Steam Packet, which was with Rod Stewart and Long John Baldry, among others. He also produced my one of my favorite prog rock albums uh Mogul Thrash uh in the early 70s and then he got into jazz fusion with Brian Auger's Oblivion Express and i had some friends who did like that stuff along with Mahavishnu and Todd Rundgren's Utopia and i just i just i just couldn't get into it but it just so happened i stumbled over this Brian Auger album on Apple Music the other day it's called Brian Auger's Oblivion Express Live Los Angeles it was recorded in 2013 when Brian Auger I think he was in his late 70s. Um, and it's a pretty good set. It's not, you know, I guess maybe the, the idea of jazz fusion has mellowed, but this is, this is seriously some, some good performances here. There's a fabulous version of Les McCann's compared to what on here. And of course, great keyboard playing. You still have some phase shifted Rhodes piano stuff, which I consider the epitome of jazz fusion sound. But all in all, revisiting, uh, a musician who was such a big part of, a, of a, a small but significant movement jazz fusion back in the 70s was kind of fun, and it, it's worth listening to. Brian Augers, Oblivion Express, live Los Angeles, is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.